Welcome to Strength for the Journey from First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu at Ko'olau. If Jesus is who he says he is, how do we honor him? How do we honor the King, the creator of the universe and everything in it? Here's First Pres Senior Pastor Dan Chun with the sermon, The Broken Alabaster Jar. So now, imagine this with me. Picture a dark stage with a single spotlight on a wooden chest. Jesus is in heaven. He has lived his 33 years of life on earth, and one day he walks to that chest. It's a chest of memories of his time on earth. And he stares at it pensively, and then suddenly he slowly kneels down and opens up the lid of the chest. And he pulls out, after peering in, some of his favorite objects to look at them once again. First, he retrieves a piece of soiled, pus and blood-stained cloth from a robe of a leper. It reminds him of that day he healed ten lepers at one time, and all of their lives they had suffered from that horrible disease that covered them with sores and made them lose feeling in their bodies, and pus would be oozing out of the sores. But then he healed them, and all ten of them ran away. They were so happy. They were so overjoyed. They were finally healed. But then one, and only one, turned around and suddenly came back and fell at the feet of Jesus and thanked him and thanked him and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan, uh, a disliked group of people who normally didn't talk to Jews like Jesus. And so it made it more remarkable. And that piece of cloth was from that Samaritan leper's robe. The leper who lavishly thanked Jesus. And a tear formed in our Lord's eye as he thought about that day. He put it back in the, in the chest, and then he picked up two copper coins of a widow who gave two copper coins one day in the temple treasury. It was all that she had. And Jesus remembered that day when he, he and his disciples saw that, and he said that, wow, that woman gave more than anyone else in the temple that day to God, his heavenly Father. And Jesus looked at those two copper coins and he, he smiled. He put them back and he looked farther in his treasure chest and, and he also gently picked up a, a leaf from a sycamore tree, a tree that was hiding a man named Zacchaeus. You know the story. The week before the Lord, our Lord died, he came through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem, and everybody wanted to see this famous Messiah coming through, or so some said was the Messiah. But Zacchaeus wasn't well-liked, and he was kind of short, so he ran up into a sycamore tree, and he kind of peered throughout the leaves, kind of hiding from the people, and because and they really hated him, because tax collectors, as he was, were always dishonest and ripped off the people. So he's looking through the leaves, and then Jesus says, Hey, you, Zacchaeus, come down 
I'm going to have dinner at your house tonight. And it's, the Bible says everybody murmured, meaning they all complained. They go, what do you mean? Why did you pick him? He's a bad guy. He's the short shyster of the city. Why do you want him? And somehow, even in that encounter, and then later dinner at his house, Zacchaeus says right at the beginning, look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Wow, changed life. Jesus again smiled. And then he picked up out of the chest a three-foot vine staff, the symbol of a Roman centurion, an officer in the army, who had a paralyzed servant who suffering greatly And this centurion asked Jesus, would you please heal my servant? And Jesus said, uh, asked, well, okay, shall I come and heal him at your home? And the centurion said, no, no, no need. I'm a man under authority. I understand authority. If I say to someone, do it, they do it. So if you just say the word, then I know my servant will be healed. You don't even need to come to my house. And Jesus said, I have never seen such faith in all of Israel. And he said that about a Gentile, which made it even more surprising. And Jesus looked at that staff and said, that centurion, what a great man he was, a faithful man. He put the staff back in the box, and then he saw in the corner of the chest a small, tiny piece of a broken alabaster jar. And Jesus closed his eyes and he thought back, way back to this event and about that alabaster jar that was broken that I shall now read about and how it happened just the week before Jesus was crucified. So please stand as I read about this account from the Gospel of Mark in the 14th chapter in the first verse where it says this. It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the festival or there may be a riot among the people. And while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment of nard, which is perfume. And she broke open the jar and poured the, poured the ointment on his head. But some were there who said to one another in anger, why was this ointment wasted in this way? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus says, hey, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has performed a good service for me. For you always have the poor with you, and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. 
So let's examine this story that is so important that Jesus says that whenever the gospel is told, this story will be proclaimed, and indeed we are doing that today in this country at this time. So let's look at the important aspects of this story. If we compare this story with the one in the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John, which adds more detail, we'll learn several things. First, the woman in the story is actually Mary of Bethany, who is the brother of Lazarus, who was raised from the dead. Mary was the one who loved to sit at the feet of Jesus to listen to his teaching while her sister Martha was bustling about in the kitchen. Second, Simon the leper is probably Lazarus's father or his brother. So think of this. <clears throat> this is a really ill family. I mean, you have a leper named Simon and a sick guy, sick guy named Lazarus who died, but then Jesus raised him from the dead. Simon probably was a leper. I mean, why else would they call him Simon the leper? And he probably got healed because I can't imagine they would let, have an active leper, leprosy patient there at the dinner table. They would probably have quarantined him if he still uh, had the disease. Now, that's really the kind of dinner party I would want to go to. I mean, you have a dead guy who is now alive. How cool is that? You have a leper who is now healed. I mean, what great dinner conversation. So... What was that like, Lazarus, being bound and dead for a bit, put in a tomb? Was that claustrophobic? So how did it feel to be dead and then wake up again later, still bound in burial clothes? Did you kind of hop out? I mean, how did that work? I mean, that's how my mind works. The third thing we look at in our passage is the feet washing. Now, um, in the Mark account, it mentions the head, but in the Gospel of John account, it says head and feet. So it was normal back then to wash feet of your guests before dinner. They have walked for miles to get to your place. I mean, they are uber dirty because there's no uber. Their feet are grimy, so bad, grungy, smelly. So the ointment and its fragrance would not only make the feet feel softer and smell good, it would actually make the entire room uh, smell good. Then the fourth thing is that when Mary anoints Jesus' feet, she breaks open an alabaster jar containing not a cheap, like, Aveeno or CVS ointment, but rather a perfume that the Gospel of John says costs a whole year's salary. I mean, did you hear that? A whole year's salary. Figure out what you make, and, like, that's the cost of the whole bottle. I mean, that's like Chanel number lots. That's way over the top. And to make it even more extravagant, she doesn't only pour the oil on Jesus' head and hair, kind of the original head and shoulders shampoo, but in the John 12 account, we learn it's also his feet. And then she wipes his feet, not with some dirty house rag, but she uses her own hair to wipe his feet. Oh, now that's like really over the top. So much so that we learn from the Gospel of John account that it is Judas Iscariot himself, the man who betrays Jesus. He's the one in the Mark story who complains in our, that it's such a waste and that perfume could have been sold and the monies could have been given to the poor. Yes, that would have been useful, very useful. Judas is into money. You know, he sold the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. So practical. 
so Star Trek Spock-like. The orator evangelist revivalist Jonathan Edwards in his sermon, Mary's Remarkable Act, that he preached a couple hundred years ago, said that her act was, quote-unquote, useless. Useless in the sense that Jesus didn't need that. And useless that Mary didn't need to do that to get Jesus to do things for her. For he had already healed Lazarus, her brother, and brought him back from the dead. I mean, what more could he do for her? Such miraculous, phenomenal things. I like what Tim Keller says, that Judas, who complained that Mary showering Jesus with all of that perfume, was wrong. Judas was wrong. Judas was always trying to, hear this, get things from Jesus, while Mary was trying to get Jesus himself, more of him, more like him. And as I mentioned last week, we must not have a transactional relationship with Jesus, or if we do certain things, then he's going to do something for me, kind of a tit for tat. Rather, we should just love Jesus and know that he loves us no matter what we do, like a good parent who loves his children no matter what he does, no matter if he is naughty or nice. Keller says that there should go, could come a time when we can see Jesus and fully experience what he has done and see him not as utility, but as of beauty. Beauty. That's a great word. Beauty is important, especially for a younger generation to understand Jesus. Maybe Mary was a young adult. There is a theory among sociologists that different generations look at life and faith in different ways as they try to decide what to do or if they will even become a Christian. For the boomers, those 54 to 74 years of age, their question was, is, what is truth? They want to hear more about doctrine or have apologetics to debate and come to the truth. Is the Bible true? Is Jesus true? Now, if you're Gen X, 39 to 53 years of age, the question they have is, what is authentic? They're tired of the fake, slick people who lead religious movements. They want someone genuine. Are, are Christians really genuine or are they fake? Now, Gen Y, 39 to, uh, 25 to 39 years of age, their question is, what is good? And what they mean by that is justice. Is Jesus really about justice, helping the poor? Are Christians keeping them to themselves? Are they really going out into the community to do social justice? And then maybe I'll consider your church or your God. And then very interesting, when it comes to Gen Z, uh, born uh, 1995, so that's um, 7 to 24 years of age, um, this is their question. What is beautiful? We go back to beauty again. They want something beautiful. And what they mean by that, they want to experience something about God, like healing, art, aesthetics. Um, doesn't mean perfection, but they want to experience something beautiful. And Keller points out that Harvard's um, Elaine Scarry of, Har of Harvard uh, wrote a book on, it's entitled On Beauty and Being Just. 
And she wrote, and I quote this, beauty somehow moves us towards justice and generosity. Beauty stops us, transfixes us, takes the individual away from the center of his or her preoccupation with self and prompts a distribution of attention towards others. Let me repeat that. Beauty takes us away from a preoccupation with self and moves us towards attention towards others. For Mary of Bethany, she saw beauty in Jesus. And this was indeed what she did, was quite an outrageous, lavish, extremely generous, extravagant, excessive, exorbitant, elaborate, effusive move that showed her love for the Lord. So when Jesus saw that broken piece of alabaster jar, a tear ran down his cheek. So now we're coming home to the challenge question to you and to me. I told you in my opening imagined story that Jesus was looking at some pieces in his chest of memories that reminded him of people in the Bible whose acts pleased him. So here's the challenge question. If Jesus were to open up his treasured chest of memories, what contemporary mementos or mementos would he find of you and me that would remind him of our extravagant, excessive, effusive love for him? Maybe he would look in and he would see a motorcycle key that reminded him of Ted who sold his $80,000 motorcycle and gave the proceeds to this church so that this campus could be bought so that thousands of people could come to know Jesus. Maybe the Lord would look in his memory box and see a worn, yellowed Punahou tuition bill And Jesus would smile as he would think of Rick and Denise who pulled their kids out of Punahou and used much of that saved tuition money to pay for this building so that people like you and me could have a place and parking to hear the gospel and experience his love. Now, you may be thinking, whoa, like, Damn, those examples, those are like way too excessive. That's way too extravagant, exorbitant. Well, golly, that's, that's like Mary Bethany. That's a year's salary. But we shouldn't look down on those kinds of gifts because remember, we stand on the shoulders of others who came before us. We are here today because of people showing their extravagant love for Jesus from which we happen to benefit from today. I mean, this is our 60th anniversary coming February 15. We stand on their shoulders, the foundation they built for us. We made a choice to make the chairs three inches wider 
That costs forty thousand dollars. Are you happy that they're softer and whiter? They lock in so you can even sit in between. We sit on the shoulders of those who came before us. But let me be really clear now. The quantity of money doesn't matter as much as the heart. For we know that from the widow, she just gave two copper coins. That was extravagant for her because that's all she had. So maybe Jesus looks in his treasured chest and sees the soda can pull tabs that remind him of the Worthington kids who used to go to our church who went around the neighborhood to get empty soda cans to recycle and turn in for the five-cent deposit so that they could contribute all the coins collected to the building fund to get this place with no allowance for themselves. Extravagant expressions of love. But it's not about money. Maybe Jesus looks into that chest and he sees a, pulls out a first prayer's parking attendant vest. And he thinks of people like Mark and Stacia Peleholani, Ross and Jan Kutsunai, who spent the time, not days, not months, but years, something like 13 years running the parking lot ministry so that people could find space and park in orderly fashion, even when no one would help lead it. It welcomed people to get to Jesus. And by the way, we still need help today. So when Jesus opens up that chest someday, what will he find that will remind him of you or of me? that will make him smile or maybe even have a tear in his eye. And if there's something in that chest, it will not be because we felt we had to do something out of guilt or, or, you know, obligation. A gift, whether Valentine's or Christmas, that we feel obligated or guilt-ridden to give, loses its meaning. And for Jesus, it's not something that would be transactional, that if I do this big sacrifice, then maybe God would really love me or bless me more. No, there's nothing more you could do that would make Jesus love you more. Remember, he already gave his life for you and sacrificed and suffered for you. He already extravagantly gave his life and love for you, when, and you hadn't done anything at that point. That's what love is. You are that precious to him. When the Bible says God is love, it gets mixed up in the secular world. When, we, when the Bible says God is love, we can think, oh, the subject of that sentence is love, and that love is like a God. And society says, yes, we want love. We should cherish love and all of his emotions. And then we can say love that will, will guide us. No, the sentence is that God, God is love. He's the main subject. The essence of God is love. The fullness of love is a personal God who loves us so extravagantly, so excessively, so elaborately that he gave his life for us after being tortured and then crucified. So nothing we could do would fully repay him for that. Lastly, I want to say this. When we hear about the extravagant love of Mary Bethany that is shown in her breaking the flask and pouring the incredible oil on Jesus' feet, wiping his feet with her hair, we can think, 
oh, wow, like, she's crazy. You're like, what a weird example. She's one wacky wahine. In fact, we can hear the word extravagant, and that can, like, send chills down our spine. Like, ah, I don't think it's ever right to be extravagant in life. I mean, that can bring a lot of anxiety to us. I mean, we, we may fear that. And what, well, why we f- may fear that in being extravagant towards Jesus is scary. Incredibly, we don't mind being extravagant in other areas of our lives. I mean, some people pay a lot of money for a dinner and a show. I have friends who are not millionaires who flew in from California to see the Bruno Mars concert. Four of them. That's extravagant. And they stayed at a nice hotel for like five or six days. Locally, we can go to Blue Note. And after the tickets for the family and the food, you're probably over $500. That's pretty extravagant for one night for a couple hours. But one that comes to our faith, we go, I don't know what that means, man. Extravagance for our faith, I don't know. It really boils down to worship. Will we go all out in worshiping God with our time and talent and treasure? Maybe sometimes we don't think we have to be extravagant because Jesus doesn't need to be thanked effusively, right? He has everything that he needs. He's like the friend who has everything. Why buy him anything? He's super rich, so to speak. But the point of the story is that he is moved by such acts. Personally, if my kid said, we don't need to thank dad because he has so much more than we do. I mean, we don't need to recognize his birthday or get him a Christmas gift because he has it all. And he's paid for our upbringing, our food, our clothing, our education, prayed for us for jobs. We don't need to thank him even though he was a main provider of our life. Now, honestly, I would be super disappointed if they didn't say something on my birthday or do something for Christmas. And I'm a human. But I wonder if we aren't extravagant in our expressions of love for God because somewhere deep down inside, we don't think he needs it. But we know from this passage that Jesus is so moved when things happen that he said, everyone's going to talk about this for millennia to come of what Mary did today. Sometimes to lavishly thank Jesus can scare us because you know what? We might lose control. And we don't want to get emotional because if we get emotional, we're losing control. Yeah, to be extravagant may mean we give up control. And in worship, I'm not saying that you have to, you know, just hold up your hands or sing loudly, though that could help. But I ask us, how do we lavishly praise God in worship? I believe it comes out of thankfulness. If we had a best friend who gave his life for us, we would hopefully be lavish in our gratitude. If a person who died giving up his or her life for us may be on the battlefield or maybe somewhere else, we would probably say, I'll do anything to support his family, his loved ones, their kids or spouses, because what he did for me, I will spend lavishly to show my appreciation. So what do I think God appreciates from us? I believe it is when, and he just told us in the Bible very clear, It's when we love God with all of our heart and all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength. We can say, oh, no, not my intellect. Oh, no, no, not not that. Yeah, that. No, not my emotions, my heart. 
Yeah, that too. Uh, not to my soul. I mean, that's like the very guts of me. That too. Oh, no, not, not my strength. I mean, what do you mean, like, you know, the special service in March is going to be 10, 15 minutes longer? I don't know if I can handle that. Yeah, your strength too. That's kind of like developed world whining, you know. Africa and China, they're walking for hours to get to church. God's saying, love me with all of your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And so I say to us today, may we live lives of just doing that. Love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that in and of itself, that would be extravagant. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. That's a special word from God when I didn't know I was preaching today. So, Lord, um, you know, it's not that complicated in the end. You just want all of our being and all of our emotions to be so focused on you that we're always thankful of all the many, many, many blessings we have. They're always grateful that you suffered and died for us. Super grateful that you provided a way for us to live in heaven eternally and that you want to be our best friend. So basically worship is just telling you that we really love you. And as we sing this song, may we sing it with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, that in essence, we're in love with you. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Before I give the final blessing, I just want to invite you that after the last song to feel free to come up and experience God in a new way. Our prayer team will be in front of the cross and in front of the choir risers. And whatever your need is, they would love to pray for you. A woman said in the last service, she said, I don't know why I don't come every week because every time I come up, I feel so much better after the prayer. So please take advantage of a way God can show his beauty and his blessing to you. And now for all of you, I have a blessing, so please stand. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. May his countenance be upon you. May you know deep in your heart the wonderful love of God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And may you lead extravagant lives of love for the Lord. In Christ's name, amen. When we honor God well, we do it with our lives and every aspect of it. Our work, our play, our rest, our giving, even our receiving. It's all done with the intent to honor and worship Jesus Christ our King. If you'd like to hear this sermon again, you can listen to and download this and other sermons from the First Pres website, fpchawaii.org. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Join us at one of our worship services on campus at 45550 Kiona Ole Road, Kaneohe, Hawaii, 96744. We meet Sunday mornings at 8, 930, and 1111. Follow First Pres on Twitter and Facebook. Download the brand new First Pres app. Watch First Press Sermon videos on our website and on Facebook. And if you need more, you can call us at 808-532-1111. 
For Pastor Dan John and the entire staff at First Prez, I'm Michael Shishido. Until next time, God bless you, and thanks for listening. Strength for the Journey is copyright 2019 and produced by the Media Ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu at Ko'olau.